Welcome back. In part two, Stuart offers a rich and very detailed discussion of the aristocratic elite group of the Alu Kohen. He discusses their formation, their Gnostic beliefs, their rituals, why the group dispersed, and how it changed and morphed into what is now known as Martinism. Stewart also discusses the underlying nationalism that seems to accompany Masonic research and what can be done to combat this. In closing, Stewart talks a bit about how the grimoire was found and why it took so long to be able to access it for translation. This is a fascinating history, and I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so I think we've talked enough about all of the little, yeah, I guess the the uh, the, the outer uh, things going on with uh, with Freemasonry, and let's let's shift now to your new book about the Masonic group founded by two men, Martinez de Pascayi. I'm sorry, I'm saying that wrong. De Pasquali. I think that's how you say it. And Mm -hmm, Louis Claude mm -hmm. de Saint-Martin and their group, they called the Elu Elu Cohen. I'd like it if you could talk about this order. This was, as you said, very elect order of spiritual warriors that were really concerning themselves with uh, spiritual warfare, I guess you could say, in a sense. And, And they were... Uh, what was surprising to me that that what you had uh, worked so uh, diligently to do was to translate a, a grimoire that they uh, that they used that had actually been lost. Uh, so, if you could talk more about the the group, what they practice, why they're so important to the history of Freemasonry, uh, that would be great because I have not had the pleasure yet of reading your book. So I'm just going to give this over to you, let you take charge and, um, and talk about what you think is the most important things. I think the best place to start with this order is the name. The name of the order that the book is about is the Order of Night Masons, Elect Cohens of the Universe. Now, the Freemasonry is a celebration of uh, the stonemasons who built Solomon's Temple. The Elect Cohen are the priests within that temple the Hebrew Levite priests who are working uh, within the Sanctum Sanctorium. The Elo Cohen's was an order uh, that found its heyday in the 1760s, uh, Enlightenment France. They are really representative of what you would call as a, a counter-enlightenment. The men that are involved in what we would call the high degrees of Freemasonry, uh, the, the everything beyond the first three degrees, were men who were conservative, aristocratic, men who did not want to be in the same lodge and have that sense of equality that Freemasonry in Scotland and England had promoted the idea that we were all on the level within a lodge. These were aristocrats who felt themselves above everyone else. 
Uh, and these mythological stories of Stuart knights and the restoration of lost kingdoms really appealed to the aristocratic uh, tastes of 18th century France. The lodges uh, in that, at that time in France were being uh, allied with uh, rationalism, cosmopolitanism, enlightenment ideas. This is an age of Voltaire and, and Rousseau. Uh, and there is a reaction to that. You have the the ancient regime, you have these aristocratics who are pushing against that and they find in certain forms of Freemasonry a traditionalist, conservative return to Catholic ideas of hierarchy, place, divine right, transmission, tradition. And the Elo Cohen's are representative of all these things together, wrapped up excellence. This is a perfect example. You have a Martinez de Pasquale, who was something of a wandering mystic in 18th century France, who was a Spanish converso, uh, who was going through the lodges in France and basically co-opting Freemasonry in order to teach his own type of theological ceremonial uh, magic. Uh, below that is a, a theosophy, a mystic, a mythological theosophy uh, that underpins the practice. And he found within Freemasonry a ready set up system in which to put out his form of a Masonic theosophy. He basically believes that Freemasonry has been corrupted and that his ideas would be a restoration of the original primitive cult, he calls it. Now, my day job is teaching religion, and cult is never a word that I would use, but that's a word that Pasquale himself used. He believes that uh, God gave Adam a form of Freemasonry, a primitive cult, a, a divinely appointed form of worship, uh, and that was passed on down through history as a secret tradition, which he was the inheritor of. Uh, others had been, but had corrupted it, and his form of Freemasonry would be a restoration back and this was a form of ceremonial magic that had its basis in the basic degrees of Freemasonry. But as you advanced through his order, you became more and more involved in the drawing of magical circles, the drawing down of angelic, de uh, angelic entities, the battling of demons. And the Elo Cohen is a, a, a collection, a hodgepodge of many different esoteric traditions. We have bits of Gnosticism, bits of uh, Kabbalah, bits of Hermeticism, and it's kind of characterised by its use of the medieval Crimoire tradition. For Pasquale, figures in the Bible, such as Enoch, Moses, Noah, these were all ceremonial magicians. So when Moses parts the sea, he drew a magical circle and done a magical operation, which then uh, impacted on the world. And these were all men who were an incarnation of the Christ. They were all types of the Christ and they came down through history. Now, this is all part of the mythology and the Pasquale's eloquence were drawn from the aristocratic and the bourgeois and the military. And they would change Freemasonry into an ascetic practice. You had to withdraw from the world. You were only allowed to sleep for seven hours at a time on a rotation. There was fasting. They prescribed what clothes that you wore. And the ceremonies involved three-day rituals, basically, were full of incense, prostration, 
prayers, basically continuous repetition of prayers of humility. And eventually the idea was that you would become reconciled to your holy guardian angel, as we would call it today. But the original phrase is the bon companion, your good friend. Once you had became reconciled to that angel, you could now be elevated to the highest degree of the order known as the Ruqua. And this Ruqua order, their ultimate aim was to work ceremonial manage, uh, magic in order to completely uh, cause a reintegration of matter with the divine Godhead. That all nature would return to a divine oneness. It's no a coincidence that the Ruqua is the Rosicrucians to heal the world gratis. The secret order that would destroy everything. Now, I often describe the Elocon, uh, contrary to what I've been saying earlier on, as genuinely uh, an end of the world cult. Now, I say that because cult is a word that was used by Pasquale himself, and it genuinely is an apocalyptic uh, form of spirituality. Uh, And this is uh, uh, not a hugely successful order. It only lasts about 10 to 15 years. Uh, Often many of the the Freemasons in France uh, outside of the order would refuse entrance of these Masons into their lodges. So he was very much an outsider figure even then. But what you get within Pasquale's uh, tradition is a combination of the hierarchies we get in Gnostic cosmology with an appreciation of the French royal court, the divine court, the sun king. God is the celestial king. Everyone in their hierarchies coming down in their place, divine wisdom, traditionalism, hierarchy. This is all put into Pasquale's order as he's a man anxious uh, with the, the change in Freemasonry that moved towards a cosmopolitanism and rationalism and secularism. Eventually, uh, the order comes to an end as Pasquale leaves France to go to Haiti to collect an inheritance, Haiti being something of a Masonic paradise at this time. Uh, And uh, once he dies, his order effectively collapses. However, some of his closest disciples continue on his theosophy if not his actual practices. And we get people like Jean uh, Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, who is a French mystic, completely inspired by the theosophy of the Eloquins. Also a man called Jean-Baptiste Willemons, who goes on to form other Masonic orders that keep the philosophy alive, but not the ceremonial magic. One of the kind of interesting footnotes is the belief that uh, Martinez de Pasquale dying in Haiti, that the magical rites of this Masonic order went on to influence uh, Haitian voodoo. Uh, And it's hard not to see a a connection when you look at the signals and the signs of the Elokoans with the the iconography and imagery of the the, uh, Haitian voodoo. Fascinating. You mentioned that there was a a type of Gnostic um, philosophy at work there. I was wondering, could could we also talk about uh, the idea of the great chain of being uh, that that we see in, I believe that is called Neoplatonic Orientalism, with that type of thinking about how everything is connected to uh, through through 
like links in a chain from the natural world to the spiritual world to the divine is that in kind of in line with this with this way of looking at the world this particular order is gnostic rather than hermetic or neoplatonic okay. uh, it is gnostic because it's world hating there is uh, gnosticism portrays man in a miserable state and Ella Cohen portrays man in a miserable state. We have been reduced, we have transgressed against God uh, and the material uh, world is is inert matter. Whereas, of course, in Hermeticism, there's a belief that God can be found in the world, that it's redeemable. But for the Ella Cohen's, the, the theosophy that underlines their practice is uh, an idea that uh, God uh, emanated angels who then were trying to imitate God by creating beings for themselves. Then the divine uh, man, uh, a figure known as Adam Ru, uh, was created by God in order to help these uh, rebellious angels back to their true divinity. But those that uh, Adam Ru was himself corrupted. He himself wanted to create beings so uh, it was man who acts as a demiurge in this system. And uh, God creates the material world in which man is imprisoned in. And through the practice of the primitive cult, through the practice of this Prisca Theologica, man can release himself from the prison and return to a pre-Adamic age. What Pasquale calls reintegration, the doctrine of reintegration, and that's the theosophy. That's what is continued on in Samatan and Willemos. Uh, this idea that man can labour towards a uh, rebuilding this complete pristine spiritual temple, which is foreshadowed by the the building of Solomon's temple. And this is where the Masonic idea comes into uh, just as how there was once a perfect building that collapsed. Earth, the material world, was a perfect temple to God that collapsed. And these Mason priests are going to work their rights, a primitive cult, to rebuild that reintegrated uh, divine temple, Earth, the material realm. Uh, And this is deeply influential for many uh, Masonic mystics in the centuries to come. So these monks, as it were, you said that they had to uh, retreat from uh, from society. You said that they, they went through day-long rituals. Are they then practicing their rituals purely on the spiritual level in, in their minds, that they, that they think that it, the spiritual is what is important and not the material, not the physical? Or were well, they were they trying to make the world, quote unquote, a better place? It's really interesting. Modern practitioners of this system will say to me that they are working towards an apocalypse of the mind, a, a new self, a, mm-hmm. a, an internal, a microcosmic uh, reintegration. But Pasquale himself, the, the or the Eloquins themselves, their actual rituals and manuscripts and texts are, are very clear. That they're talking about a very literal apocalypticism, a very literal destruction of the world. It will not be a, a kind of a restoration of the physical body. It, that will not happen. It will be a complete new spiritualized existence in which matter as we know it will be destroyed, not 
reformed or alchemically changed. It's a complete destruction of everything back into the divine oneness. Now, there's problems uh, within Masonic uh, ideas with this and Platonic Orientalism, as you mentioned, the idea that the, the soul is immortal. Uh, if you are reintegrating into the one, then you're destroying, you're obliterating the soul. So there's problems even within the Kabbalistic ideas of it because a Kabbalist would never believe that the soul could be completely obliterated. Uh, so it's never been a complete system. It was always a work in process. It was a deeply Catholic system. It required the uh, attendance of mass before any ritual work. And I think, as far as Pasquale was concerned, if you could not believe in the reality of the transubstantiation, how could you believe in the reality of the reintegration? In the same way that the priest will bring down uh, the presence of Christ into the host of the bread and wine, the Elokoan would bring down the presence of Christ into the host that is a material world. Uh, and uh, it would be done through forms of uh, Solomonic magic or that whole grimoire tradition, which was seen as a biblical tradition to Pasquale. Uh, as far as the the, uh, the, 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 the great chain of uh, being uh, within Platonism, I think uh, it's not so prevalent within the Elikoan system. But there's arguments to be made it's present in other forms of uh, masonry. If we take the idea of the, the, the world soul, the anima mundi, for, which is a huge part of uh, Neoplatonism, the idea that as human beings have souls, that the world has a soul, and your trait of a connection between the world soul and the personal soul is going to help you return to a glorified state. For some people, that anima mundi is geometry. And if you're looking at the idea of a, a the plans for a medieval cathedral, you're looking at the stained glass and you're looking at the geometry of the buildings, it's an expression of the anima mundi, that the drawing, the architect, the geometry of buildings, uh, the square and compass, the drawing of the lines and the working with the mathematics, this neo-Pythagorean idea of the, the, the forms all come to fore within the anima mundi. Uh, again, uh, that could be argued that that's a part of the, the other Masonic traditions. But the Elokoans is certainly a, a deeply a Gnostic tradition that view man in a, a degraded state. Uh, it's a huge part of why I do the work on the Elokoans. We're talking about an order that's interested in divine right, pure blood, inheritance, received wisdom. Uh, the ideas of uh, who's degenerate and who's not, who's chosen, these are easily co-opted in the modern day by uh, less savoury mm. philosophies. And the more information I can make available, the more scholarship that can be provided in the English-speaking world stops these tying into traditionalist narratives, which all spiritual traditions can fall prey to. Mm-hmm. Right. So were the were the uh, the members of this group, of course, are you know considered elitist, but are they working only for their for their own uh, spiritual advancement or the group's spiritual advancement, or are they also working for everyone's spiritual advancement? So the initial stage is their own spiritual advancement, what they call the reconciliation with their bond companion, the reconciliation with their, their holy guardian angel. Then they become part of this elitist movement, this Ru Qua grade, uh, 
or a class in which you're working for the, the restoration of the whole world, everyone, uh, everything, not just people, the matter itself, the universe uh, to be returned to its divine pre-Adamic state. I see. So it's far above the everyday festivities of a dining club. <laughs> yes. <laughs> very, very true, very true. So how did these how did this look? I mean, you've you've had the 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 hard work of translating this uh this grimoire. All these rituals are in this book. How how does this look? How are the monks looking at the this uh performance that they're that they are undertaking? I I'm imagining that they really think that there are demons and angels and they're not looking this at this in a in a metaphoric sense at all. They think this is a literal thing. So what what would a ritual look like that that say you're trying to uh fight against particular demons that are attacking I'm just making something up off the top of my head. I don't even know if this mm-hmm, is even mm-hmm. accurate. But how would something like that look? Well, Let's take the last two degrees, the last, the, the, the pinnacle of the, the order, the, the juicy stuff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, you, you, if you were reconciled, what would happen is that uh, the intention was that a luminous glyph would appear in the room, a hieroglyph, a sign that would float luminescent in the middle of the room. Pasquale would then give you a manuscript of over 2,400 signs. And this has been known as something like a phone book, the, 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 the signature of your guardian angel. And you would look up that sign that you had seen appearing uh, in the middle of the room to find out the name of your guardian angel. So that's you now integrated with your spirit and you're ready to become uh, a Rukwa. This would be a three-day ceremony. It would involve fasting, uh, abstinence. It would involve deep uh, meditation and prostration. Uh, There were very long, elaborate prayers about how degraded you were. And the room would be filled with a special incense. Now, a lot has been made of this incense that it may have had some kind of uh, hallucinogenic effect on the, the, the initiate and certainly parts of the, the incense are toxic and would have some kind of effect if you're half asleep you're sleep deprived, you haven't eaten and you've been on your knees for three days I, I could imagine that yeah. that had some kind of physiological effect then what would happen is that a, a deer's head would be presented to you in which you would have to cut the tongue the cheek and the brains from these organs would then be burned in three stoves that were covered in hieroglyphics uh, within the room. And the, this would be done at the equinox. And the ash would then be placed on your forehead. Special prayers would be completed. And it was a liturgy. It was a form of a substitute sacrifice in the same way that the Kohen priests of the Hebrew temple would sacrifice animals as appeasement. This was the same idea. Uh, and if this was done enough over time, it would uh, hopefully invoke a character known as Les Chaux, which was the Logos, which was the spirit of God, um, uh, of Jesus himself, uh, the Christ spirit. Uh, so 
whereas the lower degrees you would be invoking demons to battle them uh, or uh, drawing down angels to help you within your spiritual warfare. The ultimate aim was to draw Christ into the world just like the Mass. You were drawing the, 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 the Logos into this world and that would help reintegrate all mankind eventually and force pretty much a, a, a divine reckoning. And this would happen uh, every equinox. They, they worked in their own calendar. Uh, but of course, if you can imagine this, you, you need a house where you can mutilate animals and burn uh, stoves. And even the price of the candles alone would would stop any normal working person. You'd have to be independently wealthy. You'd have to withdraw from the world. So it very much was a form of monast- uh, Masonic monasticism. Mm-hmm. Uh, heavily influenced by the Catholic tradition. However, Pasquale himself was the most heterodox of Catholics you could get. He didn't believe in the Trinity, for example, uh, a fundamental belief in, in, in Catholicism. And I'm sure most Catholics at the time would be appalled at what he was doing. But in his mind, he was working a, a, a primitive cult, a divinely inspired form of worship. This is how all men should worship. And its echoes were th- found within the rituals of uh, Freemasonry, which he changed and made what we could call maybe a, an ecstatic lodge. Okay, more the mystical side of of uh, of spiritual practice. Okay, mm-hmm. so this this group sounds like they are extremely dedicated, serious members. That I mean, these rituals they sound. Uh, exhausting and just incredibly difficult to maintain this. So, I mean, I can imagine this is, you know, this is, <laughs> this is like hell. You know, you're like going through this struggle of trying to achieve these, the, the, the completion of these rituals. I can imagine this is not an easy task whatsoever. Uh, did they feel that they were accomplishing their goal? Did they talk about we, that? In the letters, okay. in the, the, the personal correspondence, uh, we see maybe the, the, the nitty-gritty, the reality of it. And the, again, I, I try and approach this order and Freemasonry in general is uh, to respect it as a, 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 a divinely inspired tradition for those that work it. However, the picture we get from those uh, involved is one of frustration of uh, Martin Pas- Pasquale being the most ill-organised man you could possibly get, constantly waiting on rituals to be written for instruction, for uh, money to be repaid. Often we find that Pasquale is a man who struggles financially and the temples are complaining because debts have been accrued that must be paid and it's going to reflect badly on the order itself. We see a man who tries to be something of a medicine man and when you hear about some of the medical experiments that he's doing on the wives of members, it's really, from modern day perspectives, horrifying. Uh, we find that many members uh, give up because of the, the, the nature of it, the, the commitment, it collapses pretty soon. You're talking about a 10-year uh, lifespan without having that main charismatic leader. It's hard for the order to, to maintain its uh, momentum. Uh, we also find that uh, you have people who 
how would you describe it, who uh, come into the order for the wrong reasons and uh, rob one another and uh, abuse one another. So it's not a perfect, idyllic, utopian, uh, monastic community as uh, uh, rituals might uh, put forward. It's, it's a real, real spiritual tradition with all the problems of people that all traditions have. Uh, and it can be hard, especially for modern day practitioners that very sensitive to the idea that what I'm talking about is a lived spiritual reality for people today and it should be taught and spoke about with sympathetic neutrality uh, and uh, again these issues that I'm speaking about are from historical letters as a part of the tradition. Pasquale himself was uh, thrown out of the Grand Lodge of France for being a sectarian, he was a bigot he was someone who he was a snob uh, he was not interested in the working man. He was an aristocrat. He believed in his divine right to be above others. Uh, and the, the members of the aristocracy were the only properly uh, Masonic class that there could be. Uh, a big part of Freemasonry's idea that you could not be a slave and be a Mason, uh, which caused lots of problems in America. Uh, as you can imagine. Uh, but in France, uh, that was interpreted to mean if you had to rely on someone else for your income, if you were not independently wealthy, you were a slave to that person, so could not be a Freemason. So you have all this coming into it in, in the background. Uh, you mentioned earlier on about how important this is in the history of Freemasonry. Possibly not that important, but for the history of occult Freemasonry, the men that were involved in the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, uh, these later orders, that's very influential, very influential, alongside the likes of Cagliostro and uh, John Yarker and Westcott, and these, these types of figures. I see. Was there, you said this group didn't last very long. Was there one event that, that culminated in the ending of the group or was it just a, a gradual disintegration? Yes, it was Pasquale's death in Haiti. It's a sad, a, a sad footnote for a man who spent his life fighting spiritual evil. He had to go to Haiti to collect an inheritance. Now, Haiti uh, represented two-thirds of the world's slave trade at that time. So it's a sad hypocrisy that a man who fights spiritual evil was trying to uh, settle his debts by a very earthly evil. With the, with the other founding member, uh, San Martin? So he was Pasquale's uh, secretary. Pasquale, as a Spanish converso, was notoriously by His French was notoriously bad. So he had many different uh, secretaries recording everything that he did. And San Martin uh, was a very devoted disciple of uh, Pasquale's until he wasn't, until he decided that uh, all this ceremonial 
was no longer needed to get in touch with God. And he abandoned the entire system, asked for his name to be struck from the records. And he became a, a very influential theosophist. He was someone who uh, spoke about the need for a personal relation with God. There was no more lodges for hymns. Salon culture, speaking about ideas. He wrote under the pseudonym of the unknown philosopher and wrote a number of books that were very influential in the French esoteric tradition. Uh, but all of, uh, well, almost all of Pasquale's disciples abandoned the practice but kept the theosophy. Okay. Did these disciples go on to uh, form their own sects, groups? Of- so the one man known as Jean-Baptiste Willemons was a member of uh, Baron von Hun's right of strict observance. And oh. the, uh, as it eventually came to appear that the secret chiefs were nothing but a complete fabrication, there was a wholesale reform of Masonic orders in the continent. And a new order was formed known as the Rectified Scottish Rite, which Willemons was the leading light of. And they had two secret degrees above what most people were initiated into, which were basically long instructional uh, speeches which reiterated and kept alive Pasquale's doctrine of reintegration. His theosophy remained alive within this later Masonic order that still exists today. Fascinating, fascinating material. You said that there were uh, uh, practitioners now. Has this uh, has this been recently uh, revived or has this always been kind of practiced in very, very small groups throughout uh, throughout the years? Again, it depends who you ask. Oh. I, I believe that the lineage broke. I believe okay. that it, uh, the, the, I think the Elocoan is characterized by its magical practice. Now, the practice definitively ends. However, the philosophy does continue in one of those routes that I mentioned through Willemors into his rectified Scottish right. Then uh, it kind of disappeared until about the 1890s. So whilst you have the English occult revival, you also have the French occult revival. You've got people like Eliphas Levy, uh, Papus, and during, ironically, the decadent era of French culture, uh, we start to get a revival of what's known as Martinism. Now, Martinism uh, kind of is based around Saint-Martin, uh, but it also includes Willemoz's ideas and Martinez Pasquale's ideas. The way I characterise it is uh, the doctrine of reintegration, the theosophy. That is reformed into a, a, an order in the 1890s under a man known as Papus uh, and starts to spread globally. Uh, and it really is an order centred around these three I, uh, gentlemen, these three ideas that they promoted. Then uh, the First World War came and the, most of them uh, were killed during the First World War. It started to reform again, the Second World War, and they all died in concentration camps. Uh, and then uh, after the war, uh, in the 1950s onwards, we start to see a revival of these uh, 1890s, 1910s orders. Now, uh, Martinism is a very fractured 
a complicated a movement that's even more challenging to try and understand in Freemasonry as a whole. A lineage is a, a huge preoccupation with them. In fact, none of them have a lineage that goes back to Pasquale, but they all come up with their own uh, interpretations of what lineage is. And the, some of these orders exist today. It's a, a big movement in France and Europe, and there's orders that are reconstructing based on historical documents within America and other parts of the world. Uh, the problem is that uh, the information is, is fragmentary and a lot of it has been filled in uh, with agendas that are political or uh, aren't in keeping with the Masonic ideals or, or Martinus ideals, in my opinion. And the more information we can put out there, the better that is. People don't have to join orders, get part of something that they don't understand or is a corruption or an innovation or something different. But a big part of Pasquale's philosophy was that the primitive cult was continuously corrupted and it had to be rewritten for every new age. So any innovations or changes are completely within the spirit of uh, the tradition, that it should be changed uh, when they say that they're acting as a historical reenactment, well, that's that's maybe an academic point. Mm. Uh, but spiritually, certainly, there's many people today who still believe that they're working at the same practice, uh, whether or not they're practicing Catholics, whether or not they're cutting up deer heads in their attic. I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> right. Does it still have this Gnostic uh, flavor and, and this sense of that the physical is is corrupt and bad and or has that also changed it's changed for many people okay. for for many of the different orders it becomes more a, a, a focused on the the kind of generalized spiritual aims a lot of the as with a lot of new age movements as a ideas are moving into buddhist ideas or hindu ideas as integration ideas of western it's a perennial wisdom tradition so it can be mined from different places yeah. because it's all part of a an overall truth there's different manifestations of it in different ways all over the world that emphasise one part over the other but it's very much a subculture, very much a movement that's still there uh, that uh, many uh, contemporary Masonic or occultist orders have some kind of connection with I see, is it still elitist in nature? Uh, is it still elitist? To be a member of a Martinus order you would have to have been through the craft to three degrees and then you would have to have uh, been part of some of these other Masonic orders. So you're already been through two orders before you could be considered to be a member of a Martinus order. Uh, so elitist in the fact that uh, you know you certainly have been through a clearinghouse uh, before you become a member, uh, I think... You know, you have the, the certain steps that you've had to go through, which by so, by the time that someone's uh, hoping to be initiated into a Martinus order, they've been vetted by others. I see. Is the the you you mentioned before about the aristocratic you know, background of of the members? They had to be independently wealthy. I'm I'm imagining that that's not the case today for 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 the Martinists. I guess if we call them Martinists now. I couldn't. I don't believe so. No. Uh, across the whole, uh, my understanding of it is there groups that have that 
requirement that I would imagine so, especially in the continent. But uh, my experience of meeting Martinus and people involved, they've all been very down to earth. Uh, right. You know, people, it's, it's for many people, it's about keeping a heritage alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I say that they're, they're uh, just like Freemasonry as a whole, their personal interpretations uh, are what's important rather than a kind of uh, the body or movements interpretations of the, 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 the rituals and the writings. And for a long time, there has not been the material for the English speaking world. People have been kind of making it up as they went along. They've been adding other things in. So a lot of the kind of contentious ideas are things that don't particularly suit a group of people at a certain time and a certain place have been easily marginalised or easily mm-hmm. covered up. Uh, and it's been done for 50 years. So why would we change it now? I see. Do you have any idea of how uh, how large this order is? There's a great deal of uh, a great deal of interest uh, in, in this material, and formally or informally, I would be you'd be in tens of thousands of, of of people. I would imagine that anybody who is involved in uh, Freemasonry, whether that's Freemasonry or Co-Masonry, which includes women uh, who has a spiritual uh, aspect to their life, who wants to make their Masonry something that's more than just a dining club will eventually come to Martinism as the last stop. You know, that would be your next movement in uh, if there's a, 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 a lodge available to you. And with the internet and with, you just, just like we're doing today, the, the connection of people across the world, these communities are very passionate, very connected. You know, archives and museums are opening up their uh, collections digitally across the world. Uh, we are trading and uh, swapping manuscripts all over uh, the world. It's like the 17th century just now. The the, the, the amount of uh, cross fertilization uh, people like myself are able to get access to material that's in archives at the other side of the world. Uh, so that regeneration, that kind of uh, reawakening of the Martinus Order is happening across the world just now. And the same with Freemasonry. I must admit that the conspiracy theories, the, the Dan Brown narratives, these have been as beneficial to Freemasonry as they have been damaging. I can imagine that it evokes interest in learning more about it, even if you're maybe thinking it's a little bit sketchy when you go into it. As you learn more about it, you learn that it's actually something quite different than what you're led to believe. Uh, so that makes that makes sense. I was wondering if the Martinist order could, could still be considered a mystic uh, order. Well, I believe so, okay. certainly. Uh, there's a, a, a still a strong emphasis on the, the, the look into oneself, the removal of the ego. A, a big part of the, the Martinist French tradition is the use of a, a mask, a black kind of Zorro mask, yeah. uh, because it's, it's to cover your, your identity. Your true self should come to the fore and your ego isn't who you are. It's that time of transformation and change and reintegration. And for many, uh, Ella Cohen or Martinists today, that this belief in an apocalypse, this belief in the, the, the ultimate reintegration is, is something within themselves. And that can easily be tied into 
the way many people who practice the Lima or the Hermetic Order, the Golden Dawn, may not see the reality of the spirits. They see it as integrating their shadow self or the, the parts of the psychology. And, you know, that's, I think, in keeping with the Martinist tradition, that it should be re, a, reconstituted and changed as it becomes corrupted during the course of the world history. And the, there's many, uh, many people involved in Martin's scholarship, uh, mystic Masonic scholarship, all, all over, uh, all over the internet, all over the, the world. And I would like to see more of it within the academic community. I think the first generation of the Western esoteric uh, scholarship, when we had Anton Favre, uh, Nicholas Goodrich Clark, and that, that was a kind of traditional thing you were looking at, you know, the, the, the Masonic uh, traditions and trying to sketch out a reality of that. Uh, I think we need to go back to that. I think I, I read a lot about theosophy. We read a lot about Rudolf Steiner. We read a lot about uh, Anton LaVey or Crowley, but they're always reacting to or against Freemasonry. It's a kind of barometer that, that, that really, uh, I think, uh, can be helpful if we're looking at the distance towards Masonry that these figures are positioning themselves. I agree. I agree. And perhaps with the uh, translations, English translations, that might help some people uh, to gain access to materials that they might not have had the option of, of reading uh, beforehand. Of course, it's always, it's always uh, encouraged to learn as many languages as you can. But sometimes <laughs> you're limited, so translations are quite helpful in that regard. Um, I think all all masons are, are, are doing their best to, yeah. uh, just now when the lodges are cl- closed. Yeah. If you can imagine the effect that the the, uh, the pandemics had on right. elderly men meeting in small rooms, uh, and what's happened online is a great resurgence in research and. Uh, there's a whole tradition of Masonic scholarship going back to the 19th century that's deeply fascinating and something that I would encourage anybody interested in occult history to look into. You have different approaches to it, just like the wider study of esotericism. You have the kind of insider approach where it's not really a, a, an academic study. It's studying masonry as a mason and you believe in a, an actual hidden wisdom tradition that can be found within the different degree, degrees and orders and that's the likes of people like uh, Manly P. Hall mm-hmm. or John Yarker. They're working within the tradition. Then around about the 1890s, 1900s, you have a, a kind of fully historical critical approach where they're fed up hearing about pyramids and Stonehenge and there's this anxiety where it's fully academic and they just deny the spiritual reality of what any 18th century Mason has said and go, that's all nonsense. We're not interested in that. We just want to know names and dates, what pub they met in, uh, find the primary uh, documentation. And I think what we're getting today, and certainly what I would advocate is a kind of religionist approach where you let the texts, let the rituals lead the way, but use the best scholarship possible to try and understand that this was a spiritual tradition and that the voice of the Masons themselves are more important than anything else. And let that ritual degree minute book uh, lead the way in a, in a scholarship of it. Good point. Well, your book is available for purchase on a website called Lewis Masonic. Uh, I believe that's the only place where you can buy it now. 
there was another publisher, but uh, as I understood, but now there's just Lewis Masonic that you can go that's, to now. That's right, okay. yes. All right, well, that is uh, uh, something that I will be sure to include in the uh, program notes so people can, can go to, uh, to check that out for themselves. Now, in our discussion before this interview, you mentioned that you'd like to talk about the underlying nationalism that seems to accompany Masonic research or Anglocentric research. And I guess we kind of started to touch on this a little bit in what we were talking about before. But if you could elaborate on this, I'd be very interested to hear what you have to say about about this uh, aspect. Freemasonry is a subject that's very dear to a lot of people's hearts and a lot of Masonic uh, research was done by the kind of lay researcher uh, and much of the, the, the groundwork that we deal with today has been built on that and the, it's a, uh, it's became, become something of uh, an issue of national pride especially within the UK did Freemasonry begin in Scotland did it begin in England and often what you find is, is really kind of underlying ideas of national that come through and Freemasonry is a subject that can be co-opted for a number of different agendas and nationalism is one of them and people will say that my account today is is based on my, my own Scottishness and that I put an over emphasis on that and it's something that we need to be uh, conscious of when we're, when we're talking about Freemasonry as mentioned anybody coming to research Freemasonry for the first time will just find an abundance of American characters uh, Characterizations of it, talking about the, the Scottish Rite, the 33 degrees, as if this is the, the, the real masonry, uh, when really that comes from the fact that masonry in America, the craft lodges all are independent sovereign entities, and you couldn't visit one from another and weren't representing one or recognizing one, so they needed an overarching body for the whole of the northern jurisdiction or the southern jurisdiction so that people could meet across state boundaries. That's why that became a prominent form of Freemasonry in America, whereas we don't have that dominance of the, the Scottish Rite in Scotland. Uh, it, it's a craft. And when you look at the history of Freemasonry, it's, it was really written uh, in the 19th century. You have a book by a man called Gould, the, the Concise History of Freemasonry, that puts down the, the basic colonialist history of Freemasonry at that time. And uh, in the first edition, you see Scotland is at the beginning. And the, as the editions come out, it's rewritten, the chapters are moved, and it starts to become Anglo-centric. It starts to become London-centric. The, the official founding date of Freemasonry is 1717 in a pub in London, uh, whereas Documentary evidence show as far back as 1638, Scotland, the, the oldest, the minute books, the oldest rituals, everything. But Scotland was betrayed as a, a backwater. How could something as potent as, as Freemasonry be founded in England? It wasn't until the 1980s that you've got academics like uh, David Stevenson, who then come along and really put down a framework for its origins within Scotland, but then again, you have Scottish Masonic authors that uh, will just dismiss any evidence that the likes of figures like Christopher Wren or Elijah Ashmole were important figures that perhaps the Freemasonry that we have today has more in common with the livery companies of London in the 1850s, 1840s than it has anything to do with Scottish uh, Freemason lodges. 
The same happens uh, in 18th century France. The French are much more interested in saying that uh, Freemasonry comes from Scotland, hence Echo Say Freemasonry, the Scottish right, because that politically helps them because the Jacobites, the Catholic, uh, the the war, the ongoing wars with England. uh, And the same goes on uh, when we get to, uh, when it starts to go to America, you have issues to do with whether black men should be involved in lodges, what the real essentialist Freemasonry is. The nationalist and prejudice uh, right, uh, tendencies that we get within Freemasonry really speak to the person who's writing. Often, much of what I've spoken about today is uh, the French high degree Freemasonry. When you read some of the, the, the scholarly material, they use words like farcical, ridiculous. They have preconceived notions about French arrogance. It's like Waterloo all over again. Mm-hmm. When you read some of these uh, Anglo-centric uh, uh, accounts of French high-degree masonry and German high-degree masonry, and what I'm trying to do with the book and with my research is, is again, advocate for the use of religious studies, the tools of religious studies. When we read something on Sufi Islam that uh, would say that it's uh, an innovation and that it's a corruption and that it should be disregarded, we would understand that there's an orthodox uh, prejudice in that piece of writing. And when we're reading Masonic uh, scholarship that mentions the Elokoans, Egyptian Freemasonry, uh, alchemical Freemasonry is an innovation, is a farcical ploy to make money, is a way to appease snobbery and aristocratic ideals. You know that there's an orthodox reaction happening there. There's a, a need to try and bring it back to, no, it's English, it started here, it's conservative, it's ours, it's not all this other stuff. And the, for many Freemasons, uh, themselves, when you ask them what Freemasonry is, it's it's very difficult for anybody to to, to define it without all this prejudice coming ahead. And I think it's because it's been such a a cottage industry for so long. I think we need more people coming to it from the esoteric uh, scholarly community to research it and help iron out some of these issues. And do not allow it to continue to be manipulated and tie into narratives, whether that's political, spiritual, extremist, national, been used for so many other agendas that I think it's about time the Masons' agenda themselves should be discussed. Very excellent points you're making. And uh, I think that one of the most important messages i guess is coming through is the diversity and that uh, there really needs to be a sensitivity to to this diversity and that it's nuanced and that it's not just one thing and uh it is a complex thing and it's you can't just you can't just sum it up in 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 five five things like oh it's it's this no it's it's much more uh complex and diverse than than that. So this has been a really uh, eye-opening discussion for me because, again, as I said, I don't really know that much about Freemasonry. It just always seems to be shrouded in this mysterious <laughs> form uh, that, you know, to, you can learn about 
quote unquote, basic things, and then it becomes really murky and it's very difficult to, to know. So it's, it's very nice to, to hear people talking about it in, in the way that you're talking about it. And I appreciate that, uh, greatly. And I do agree with you that there needs to be much more, uh, discussion as to what you're, you know, the, the, the points that you're raising that we have to really be, really be careful about how we're placing this, how we're framing this. Uh, and I think that can be, I think this could be said about any type of uh, tradition, uh, of course, but especially with something that is, uh, I don't know, Freemasonry does seem to be very maligned because we were just talking about the, all the conspiracy theories and the, the, uh, People's imaginations like to, to, you know, to run and, and to make up uh, fantastical tales about things. Another thing that, that struck me is that we're talking about people, that what you said, that we're talking about the, the people behind this. So I really appreciate this approach. I like this approach. This speaks to me. <laughs> so, so thank you so much for the work that you're doing in this regard. Because I think that more, more and more people uh, coming forth with, with these more sensitive uh, narratives, I think that's an important step in the right direction, in my opinion. So thank you for that. I really thank you. think that's important work that you're doing. So other than your website, uh, which is SJA cleland.com i'll spell that s-j-a-c-l-e-l-l-a-n-d.com uh where can people contact you uh to ask questions about your work on do you have social media yes certainly i'm quite active on facebook social media you can contact me there Uh, i write for different blogs the rosicrucian tradition blog for example uh, of the, uh, the pan officers a dot com is uh, a website that I work for, a, a, a blog that I write for rather, a, and the social media mainly. Feel free to reach out and discuss some of these ideas. I keep a blog as well with different researches, so happy to hear from you. Any discussions you want to have, a, I would be more than happy to do so. Wonderful. I hope that people will uh, take you up on that and and reach out to you to talk to you about things, because I'm certain that there are a lot of people out there like me who are just a bit, yeah, confused, I guess maybe be the right word. (laughs) And they, you know, would really appreciate someone speaking in just very practical ways about uh, about the the issues and the questions that they, that they might have. And can everybody find all of the links to these different blogs through your website? Certainly, okay. they're all there. All right. Well, I will make sure that that, is, uh, that that is included in the program notes. Congratulations with your book. I can imagine that this was super difficult and tedious work to translate. Very much so. <laughs> To translate the script, how long did it take you to do it? Six years. Wow. Six years we were going through it. It was a very messy uh, transcript, uh, manuscript. It was found in a market in Algiers in the 1950s. And the the man who found it had actually was running a Cohen order, which he kept uh, the manuscript from 
So he was purposely teaching uh, a different version of the order. And then once he died, he gave it to the Bibliothèque Nationale Francaise under the provision that it should not be made available or copies made available for 20 years after his death. That time elapsed. He was able to get copies of it and we've been working through it since then. And even trying to make sense of it and put it on the page is quite a kind of, the layout of the book and the design of it by Steve Adams took a long time to get right so they could be made uh, faithful to the original, but understandable to the English speaking audience. To my knowledge, it is the only primary source that is available commercially uh, in an English speaking language. Amazing feat in that regard and an amazing story, actually, as well, that this has been tucked away somewhere for decades <laughs> and that now it's uh, it's getting a second life, I guess you could say, which is uh, very interesting and, and uh, interesting development, I guess we could say, that this is probably going to lead to a lot of new new things that we didn't expect <laughs> probably beforehand. But uh, congratulations again. Thank uh, you. Really, uh, like I said, important work that you're doing. And thank you so much for uh, joining me today, taking time out of your day to talk to me about this. Uh, I feel enriched. I feel illuminated. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it was a very uh, good discussion, and I hope that the, that the listeners uh, agree. So I wish you all the best and good luck with your, uh, with your continuing research and your, and your teaching. I don't know. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I think Freemasonry is uh, something that a lot of people believe is, uh, uh, has uh, been taken over the world. But Freemasonry itself is often taken over and is often co-opted, whether that's by uh, for positive ends or for uh, nefarious ends. Uh, I would ask the, the listener to look into it for themselves, look at the scholarly research and try not to come to this subject with too much of a preconceived idea of what these human beings uh, are doing in their spare time and try and understand it as a a, a subject that is uh, dear to many people's hearts, uh, might well be your grandfather, uh, and uh, try and understand a bit about it uh, as a, a, an important part of the Western esotericism, Western spiritual culture. Excellent closing remarks. I have nothing else to add. I totally agree. <laughs> Thank you again, Stuart. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed listening to Stuart talk about Freemasonry and the Elu Cohen as much as I did. My thanks again for a really enlightening discussion. Please see the program notes for more information about the book, plus Stuart's website and social media links. And please feel free to ask questions and engage in discussion. Some more housekeeping. I will be away for several weeks in September, so the podcast for next month will be uploaded near the end of the month. As with this month, there will only be one spotlight interview on YouTube due to scheduling conflicts. Next month's offerings include the Theosophical Society from an Indian Perspective on the podcast and Carl Jung's Black Books and Ideas About Madness on Spotlight. 
So I appreciate your patience and hope to see you again in late September. And as always, thanks for listening.